The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Afternoons with Mike right here on the Shepherd Radio Network all over North Central and Central Florida. Glad to have you along. On the line with me today from beautiful San Diego, California, Pastor Jim Garlow. He's an author. He's a communicator. He is, as we said, a pastor. Uh, he is uh, the head of a conference that's coming up. It's called the Future Conference, and we are excited to have Pastor Jim with us here today. Welcome to my program. Well, an honor to be on with you, my friend. This is really exciting. I understand that uh, a mutual friend, Matt Staver, is also going to be at this conference that uh, we'll be talking about today. How did you meet Matt? Oh, my goodness. I've known him for a long time, uh, fighting for religious liberty issues way back. All right. Well, what uh, a lot of people would say, what is it that drew a pastor like yourself You've been out in California, you mentioned a number of years now. What drew you into this current, let's say, battle? It is really a battle, isn't it, that we're fighting right now? It's a battle for our country, isn't it? Absolutely. The short answer to your question is God. Okay. <laughs> I, and I'm not, I'm not being facetious when I say that. Uh, in my ninth year, when I was nine years of age, on August the 13th, my nine years, when I was nine years of age, I remember a, a, a governmental anointing coming upon me. Um, now, that sounds really strange, I know, for a nine-year-old, but I've been governmentally or politically involved virtually every day since then, watching the news every day from that moment on in the governmental political arena. Isn't that so? God, I, I didn't know to call it a governmental anointing at the time, of course, uh, but I look back to it, and I understand precisely what it was. But I've been involved from that moment to the time, and it's really not political. It's actually being biblical, quite frankly, biblical governmental, as a matter of fact. I agree with you completely, and yet there seems to be a lot of pastors that I've talked with in the country that really don't see yet uh, that uh, tie-in as a pastor in a Bible-believing church uh, to be involved politically. I mean, I think a lot of the impact from the media's uh, words about separation of church and state has really gone way beyond what was ever intended by our founders. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine. I pastored a very uh, sizable church, and he pastored one that was quite as large as me. He stood taller than me. He looked down on me, both uh, in physical stature and in a condescending fashion one day, and he said, Jim, I'm not political like you. And I looked back up at him and I said, you know, I'll call him Bill. It's not his real name. I said, Bill, my problem with you is not that you're not political. My problem with you is you're not biblical. Let me illustrate. If I were a slave in the 1860s in the South, would I want my slave owner to go to Jim's church or to Bill's church? The answer is Jim's church because Jim will address the sin of racism as manifested in slavery and do whatever he can to get that slave set free. Or if I was a baby in the womb of a 14-year-old girl who lived next to Planned Parenthood, uh, would I want that, that young girl to go to Jim's church or Bill's church? The answer is Jim, because I'll do everything I can to save the life of that baby. Uh, I was ordained, Mike, through the Wesleyan denomination. It's not mm -hmm. a large denomination. And the Wesleyans were the only denomination formed for radical abolitionism when the Methodists were splitting. Uh, they had not yet split before the Civil War. They were saying, uh, well, don't talk about slavery in the South because you'll offend the slave owners, and they'll leave our churches and take their tithes with them. And, and a group of Methodists said, no, it's morally wrong anytime at all times. We will not be silent about it. And they were kicked out or left, and they formed the Wesleyan, then called the Wesleyan Methodist mm -hmm. Connection of America. And those early churches in the South were a day's journey apart, part of the Underground Railroad to smuggle the slaves out of the South into the North. In fact, in one county— in South Carolina, there was an expression, we need this rope to hang another Westland. So I asked my buddy Bill, I says, were those guys political or were they actually biblical? The answer is obviously uh, they, they, were, they were biblical. There's other guys who say, well, I, I'm not political. I just preach Jesus. Well, I, I preach. I, I preached at a church last Sunday. I'll be preaching in another church next Sunday. I'm not in my own congregation now. I 
I can preach in other churches. I, I, I preach to receive Jesus at the end of every sermon. But we don't just preach Jesus. We preach what Jesus preached. What did he preach? A kingdom. What does a kingdom have? A king. What is the king over? Everything, including the governmental, including the political. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything that Jesus is not sovereign Lord over. Consequently, we preach the establishment of the kingdom in every arena of life. Mm. This is exciting, and I I'm, wish that more, more, and I'm praying that more pastors will jump on this wagon because we are seeing issues right now uh, that are changing. It's like the ground is moving right under our feet in America in the last two years since the Biden administration began. Uh, a lot of changes. I think it's it's happening at breakneck speed, and it's causing a lot of concern, uh, obviously, with finances, with inflation, the cost of gas, etc. But there are so many other issues that are going on with losses of personal freedoms. And even the words that have come out in today's news about uh, his, uh, the president's desire to ban nine millimeter weapons. Uh, it's just like every day there's something different that's being brought up that would be a further erosion of our rights. And that is concerning, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and most Americans are probably unaware, although I, I suspect you covered it, we narrowly dodged a bullet in the last couple of days when WHO, WHO in Geneva, the World Health Authority, uh, they were unable to pass the amendments that Biden and his crew were going to pass along with a number of European nations, which would effectively have surrendered our sovereignty uh, to the global or globalist fully. Most are not aware that in the United Nations a vote took place. Actually, it was the absence of a vote. It was a consensus uh, in the first week of December, I believe it was the first week of December, uh, in which much of our sovereignty was surrendered. This is happening on an ongoing basis. We're not the same nation as we were just uh, two years ago, as you've already mm-hmm. – two and a half years ago, you've correctly pointed out. Uh, you've actually set me up for what the purpose of the, uh, wor- the future conference is, and that's to create an alternative uh, or universe in effect that keeps us from being fully marginalized. And canceled. Well, that's exciting to hear. Now, I know you've got a lot of people coming, and there's a great website that you have. It's uh, it's called the Future Conference, and you can get to it by going to wellversedworld.org, and then click on the picture, and it's the Wellversed Future Conference in Arlington, Virginia. So you're going to get to come uh, eastward, my friend, and uh, join the people there and. <laughs> In, uh, in Virginia, not far from uh, at all from the nation's capital, obviously. That is the nation's capital. Arlington is right there. And uh, you're going to be kind of on this uh, territory where I'm not so sure everyone will be as excited to be there as you might be. <laughs> so excited to have you there, I should say. But I'm really <laughs> glad you're going to be there. Now, the Lord's given us a ministry called Wellversed. Ever since I stepped, uh, transitioned from local church pastoring, you know, I've been involved governmentally throughout my ministry. But uh, we have a ministry. It's a small ministry. I'm not going to spend it, make it sound like it's big. We have a ministry to members of Congress. We have a ministry to ambassadors. We've met privately with 93 of the 193 ambassadors of the United Nations. I served on uh, Trump's faith advisory board for four years. And, and then we've had the privilege of meeting with 10 heads of state, presidents or prime ministers in various countries. And the goal is to bring biblical principles of governance any way we, we possibly can. So this conference taking place, the reason it's in Arlington, Mike, based upon what you just said, across the river from the Potomac from D.C. was last conference we did, we did in D.C., and Mayor Bowser decided to put such severe COVID restrictions. The room we had that would handle 600, she only allowed 83 people in it. Oh, isn't that and something? So con- consequently, we, we moved across the river to be out from under that kind of uh, despot rule. But the, the future conference is July 20, 21, and 22. It is in Arlington, Virginia, in a hotel there right near the Pentagon. It's, it's actually it, – picture it this way, Mike, if you would. Three one-day conferences all put together. The first day is what to say and how to say it. In other words, how do we respond biblically, scripturally to every governmental and political topic? I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Wellverse that lays out the biblical foundations – to every governmental topic. 
So the first day is what to say and how to say it. Number of members of Congress are coming. They're, they're, there's only like TED Talks. They're about 10 minutes each. And as the people are speaking, we have a scribe a stenographer who's typing, and the stuff's coming up on the screen, bullet points. And then it goes to everybody's computer and their cell phone afterwards. So they have it as a, like an electronic flashcard on any topic. That's mm. day one, how to know how to respond biblically, governmentally to every topic. Day two is very different. Day two is what if we continue to be canceled and marginalized in this culture? How do we create a parallel or an alternative universe so that we not only survive but thrive as Christians? For example, uh, Justin Trudeau froze the bank accounts of every person who supported the Canadian truckers, even though everything they did was legal according to Canadian law. If you gave a sandwich to them, he froze your bank accounts. It was that severe. Wow. Well, that, that has actually happened in the U.S. Nick Vujek, one of our speakers, now Nick is one of the, he's the guys without arms and legs mm-hmm. who travels all over the world as a speaker. He woke up the morning of, in April of 2019, and his bank accounts were all frozen. His, his debit card was no longer worked. His credit card no longer worked. In an instant, they shut him off because they didn't like what he said, wow. his position biblically. That has happened to quite a few people. So our, our first focus is how do you protect your dollars from that happening to you? What are you going to do? Kevin Freeman, who's a genius on this topic, will be our keynote speaker on that topic, along with Nick Vujek and, and some others addressing that. The second area is medical. There are 25,000 doctors, we're told, that are frontline doctors that did not accept the government coercion of vax. So many of those could lose their credentialing. They could lose their licenses to practice. What happens if you don't have a doctor? Or what happens if you lose your health care because they say you didn't get the vax, therefore we're not going to cover you or we're going to charge you more. We're going to gouge you for not doing it, which is being openly discussed. So how do you create an alternative medical system? Mm-hmm. What about in the aspect of education, for example, or communication? What if your communication is shut off because AT&T or somebody, Verizon, doesn't like your views biblically? Uh, what about education if you're forced out or forced in of education you don't want? How do you create an alternative universe? So we have specialists coming in all those topics. In, in terms of what, what, if, what if you had to flee? What were the place of refuge? Where would you go? Now, this sounds scary, but it's actually not, because Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He sees us through everything, number one. But number two, see day two as essentially like insurance. You know, we have car insurance, health insurance. We have life insurance, fire insurance, hail insurance. Well, this is kind of like insurance. I'd rather have it and not need it than wish I had it mm-hmm. and not have it. And wish I need it, wish I had it and not have it. So the bottom line is that day two is some top-level specialists equipping you for precisely how to function in a culture in which people of our values are being consistently marginalized. Day day three is a completely different one. We're going to uncancel George Washington. We're going to uncancel Thomas Jefferson. Having two specialists lecture, then we're getting on buses, going to Monticello, Jefferson's home, going to Mount Vernon, Washington's home, where, by the way, the guides, I was just at Monticello, two months ago, and the guides are quite woke there. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you over and over how bad Thomas Jefferson was. Oh, yeah. We're going to uncancel them, and we're going to take people to those and learn the full full story, true story about Washington and Jefferson. So that's day three of a three-day future conference. Uh, they can go to wellburstworld.org, and they'll click on future conference there, and it'll bring everything up. Uh, the hotel information, airline information, all 40, I don't know, 43 speakers, whatever it is, mm-hmm. they're all listed there. And we invite everybody to come and join us July 2021 22 in, uh, in, in Virginia. Have you ever done one of these conferences at this scale before? Yes, I did one in San Diego uh, seven years ago, 2015, 56 speakers in four days. And uh, then we did a small scale, September of 2020, in Washington, D.C. Uh, we actually uh, rented a, a museum of the Bible, and we had 19 or 20 major speakers packed into one day. Uh, so this is really technically, I suppose, this kind of thing, my third one of this nature to do. It sounds so important and so exciting to hear. You know, I think still a lot of people are maybe not believing uh, that it could be as bad as uh, some of the things that we are all seeing 
some of the things that uh, you've even alluded to, the cancel culture. There are still people, uh, people like Eric Metaxas and others who are in Christian media who are still kicked off of certain, uh, like Twitter and YouTube. There's a lot that is still not restored today. So this is an ongoing thing, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I'm kicked off of YouTube right now until June 15th. I'm in prison with him. Wow. Uh, Eric Metaxas is a close friend. We we do what's called the World Prayer Network every Wednesday night and Sunday night. Mm. At, uh, Zoom and it's on social media platforms. Every at 8 p.m. Eastern, we interview members of government. We interviewed Mike Pompeo a few weeks ago. Top levels of government, top thought leaders, newsmakers from across the country, Ukraine, the Canadian truckers, uh, various countries. And uh, so we every Wednesday night and Sunday night at 8 p.m., we do the worldprayernetwork.org call. And Eric has been on with us many, many times. In fact, he was one of our commentators for the first three months. He was on virtually every uh, time with us. And he has been brutally attacked, as have a number of other of my friends. Mm-hmm. Attack have been thrown off media repeatedly or whatever, whatever they didn't like. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, if you just think, if you just think back to it, we were all notified right after the elections, within a, within a few weeks or a couple months after the election, we were all notified by Homeland Security that if you raise the question of the integrity of the election, that, that qualifies you as being a domestic terrorist. Oh, so it's not goodness. just that private enterprise is doing this. Uh, this is clearly the government, the current government that is carrying this out to intimidate and bully and violate the Constitution. Well, we are seeing uh, members of Congress, I'm thinking of Lindsey Graham right now, who just uh, just came out in the last couple of days and made a direct uh, blame pointing at uh, the president, saying that this this whole f- crisis with gas prices, this is all intentional to make America have to get past uh, our dependence on fossil fuels. So there's no question that uh, it's got the attention not only of uh, pastors and people who are or maybe more constitutionally minded, but I mean, even members of Congress that are currently serving right now are, are waking up. And I, I pray that it, that waking up thing happens on both sides of the aisle. Well, there are a, a lot of uh, conferences taking place addressing uh, high tech and what's called Section 230, they're trying to change the law, replace it, or re- do a completely different law on this. I, I don't know. Right now, it, even though uh, those on the left side of the aisle scream and holler about it periodically, it's working so much to their advantage. I'm not optimistic that it's going to be changed or addressed at all. I think the sheer violation, violation of constitutional rights is going to continue to happen at this time. There's not an evidence that the mood is turning the other way in terms of an oligarchy of, of, of people who are really very happy mm-hmm. with the, uh, the way it is. Now, the good news is there are numbers of people who uh, would identify with the party in power who realize the abuses. And so there, I think there is a waking up there that something has gone terribly wrong with our constitutional republic, which is no longer constitutional, nor is technically a republic the way it's operating. We'll be back with more from Jim Garlow coming up in just a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike. I'm talking with Pastor Jim Garlow right now from California. And Pastor Garlow, I have a question for you on this. Uh, when you look at the uh, this whole election thing that's coming up, a lot of people are obviously, and for good reason, putting hope in the November election to kind of turn some things around in Washington, in our country. Uh, Do you feel that America, the states, have done enough to prevent what could be shenanigans going on in the uh, election process this November? Oh, no, not remotely enough. They haven't even been able to admit to a large extent of the kind of fraudulence that took place last time, so worthy where the Supreme Courts would step in and overrule the legislators, violating uh, the Constitution. That's not big knowledge. There's been no profoundly successful campaign, to my knowledge, in all states to get rid of the fraudulent voters in terms of dead people voting. Ballot harvesting is legal in quite a few states, which is a travesty. Uh, There is no desire on the part of many in power, the controlling party at the present time, to have clean and clear and honest and fair elections. That is not there. Now, let me give you some good news. 
there has been a lot of work by legislatures where they can, where they're able to, and where there's enough caring about integrity. The issue should not be a Republican versus Democrat issue. It's now it's become that, but it's just quite frankly, it's an issue of who cares about integrity and honesty in elections. Mm-hmm. Well, we all should. Unfortunately, not all do. Here's some good news uh, in, in Virginia. Two years ago, I'm going to quote my buddy Chad Conley on this. In Virginia, two years ago, the governor was priding himself that he could take a baby and kill the baby after it was born. That's Governor Northern, Democrat, who was also a medical doctor of all things, could kill a baby after it was born. Now, because people organized in that state of Virginia, a pastor who I've never met named Brian Fox, an independent Baptist pastor, who said, enough of this is enough. And he organized people, and the result was Chad Conley and Faith Winds and other organizations went together, and they organized people in such a way they trained 1,000 poll watchers for integrity and 300 election judges. I think it was something like 7% of the vote were dead people, and they got rid of those. There was another, I don't remember, the 7% or something, I don't remember the exact amount, that were not filled out properly at all. They didn't have the Social Security, last four digits of Social Security or something of that nature. And the result was we had an actually close to honest election. And what happened? Uh, we got a person in office who now, uh, Governor Yonkin, who now actually has phoned the people and prays for them in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's how far the state has shifted in two years because people said enough of this deception, enough prevarication, enough dishonesty. We're going to rise up and we want elections with integrity and honesty. So if people will become poll watchers, election judges, whatever their respective state calls it, calls it takes the training and then be bold, courageous, and stay on site and demand to stay on site and have your cell phone cameras running. Oh, that would be one of the more encouraging things that can and could happen. I pray it does, because this is going to be a uh, a real mess if if we have anything at all like what happened in uh, 2020. And I'm praying that people will do this, and I'm praying that those uh, that are in government positions that have maybe tightened, as you said, some of those states have tightened up laws. I believe uh, Florida is in great shape in, in that regard. But, you know, we do need, we know that there are, even in your own home state, California, there are a lot of issues out there, aren't there? Oh, my goodness. We, we, have, we have our challenge. Now, you, Florida, you, you're leading the way. It's not by accident. People are flocking to Florida from everywhere. Uh, it, it's the governor's, the leadership that you have there and your governor is absolutely exceptional. Just a few places in the nation where we have that level and mm-hmm. quality. I would agree. Integrity. Uh, understand. So it's not by accident those those places flourish, and other places in California, for example, when the first time in California history, we lost not only one member of Congress, we lost two. Now, for every member of Congress, you can count on about seven hundred fifty thousand population. That means one point one one and a half million people uh, are gone in terms of legal people uh, in the state of California. It's it's staggering the kind of the uh, if you go into Los Angeles or San Francisco. You see massive areas of, of just completely uncontrolled homelessness, uh, drug abuse on the streets, mental illness allowed to run rampant uh, on the streets. It's the destruction of an otherwise remarkably beautiful and awesome place called mm. California. Yeah, I, it is uh, terrible to look at what's going on there, and people that I know that live there feel uh, that this kind of thing. And, you know, I think it's. It's hilarious to think of the the different jokes that's brought about. I mean, even Babylon B uh, giving the uh, Governor Newsom the award for being the top uh, producer of U-Haul box trucks moving out of out of California. That was pretty yeah. funny. I don't think he got as much of a laugh out of that as a lot of us did. But you know, just this... think of it that that Babylon B is constantly harassed lawsuits. Here it is, a, a document of satire. Mm-hmm. And the and the leftist progressives can't even have a sense of humor to acknowledge their own pathetic policies. Policies matter in every in every country or every state where they will acknowledge the biblical principles of governance. We will reduce human pain, suffering, and poverty. Show me a nation, or show me a state where there's an increase in human pain, suffering, and poverty. And I'll show you a country or a nation or a state which is violating biblical principles. Mm-hmm. God has an answer. He has biblical principles. Everybody knows the Bible speaks to personal issues, family issues. They know it speaks to church or congregational life. 
but they don't understand the Bible speaks to biblical issues of life. That's why I wrote that book, Well-Versed, was to lay out the biblical underpinnings, foundations, the 30 political topics. And once again, I just want to, I want to invite you as well, Mike, to, if you can, come hang out with us at the Future Conference hmm. up there in Arlington, Virginia in July. That sounds fun. I would love to try to make that thing happen. Uh, again, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Pastor Jim Garlow. We've just now mentioned this conference. I know that your your time is short with us here. Got a few minutes left. Let's go back and talk about that conference one more time this coming July in Virginia. Tell us about some of the speakers. I know Michelle Bachman is going to be one of the co-hosts. Yes, um, uh, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman. She's worked with our ministry well-versed ever since we really launched it. And she's going to be the co MC on day one. Matt Staver, the attorney, brilliant attorney, mm, will be the right MC here. on yeah. day two. And then we have, this is unusual, we have a set of two or three people, three, they're actually pastors, they have a anointing upon them prophetically and apostolically. And they, their task, because the conference is dealing with some really tough topics, I have saved time after each speaker if they want to use it. They're not scheduled to speak. They want to use it for prayer, for praise, for proclamation, for encouraging, for exhorting spiritually, whatever the Holy Spirit is staying at that moment, to encourage and lift people in, in, the, in the midst of some kind of, some kind of tough news. Here's kind of a roll, rollover of, of some of the people who will, who will be speaking for. Kevin McGarry, African-American out of San Francisco. He's a close buddy, best speaker you ever hear on CRT and BLM. Jennifer Roback Morris speaking on um, – on homosexual and transgenderism. Walt Heyer is one who went through that story himself, giving his own account. Barry McGuire of McGuire Car Wax, who's the car guy. Uh, he's how to share your faith in a hostile hostile culture. We have a number of members of Congress, Congressman Tracy Mann, talking about energy independence, a number of them uh, coming and speaking. Kevin Freeman speaking about how to keep your funds from being frozen mm. by the government. Nick Bujek's going to touch the same thing. Kevin's going to make the case that constitutionally, according to the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution, you can take it, they're going to found a bank that is gold-based again, like it used to be, like our banks, our banking system ought to be, gold-based and by cryptocurrency. And the government will not have the intrusive power to come in and rip it away from you. We're going to have Pastor John Coe speak. He is he's going to be there by by a Zoom. And by video, because he oversees a million and a half Christians in the underground church. Now they call it the decentralized church, and and they, in 33 years they've not had a house house leader ever arrested. They know how to operate underground. Pastor Cheon from Pasadena is going to talk about his journey to all the way to the Supreme Court, where they were coming after him to arrest him. Pastor Henry Haldebrand in Canada is going to talk about all the pastors in Canada who've been uh, arrested. In, in recent years, a pretty painful story to hear. Carla Dean Graves, uh, uh, a, a medical a doctor, she's going to talk about how to give medical care in spite of governmental overreach. Matt Bellis is going to talk about shared health care. Uh, we have a guy named Michael Orzinski who's going to talk about how to create very quickly, if you need them, many clinics or many hospitals. Uh, another lady, Pamela Holliday, is going to talk about how in the midst of a food chain crisis that we have going on right now, how to become agrarian in your understanding, be trained for that so you know how to provide for yourself. Mm. Uh, the, the, the actor, uh, Sam Sorbo, who's married to Kevin Sorbo, the actor as well. Oh, yeah, I know them. talk about yeah. underground education and schooling. Uh, uh, Joshua Ashcock, he's uh, just graduated MIT in blockchain. What it means for blockchain in terms of communications, in terms of your health records, your health independence, your health freedom, uh, but there's just a, a lot of there's a lot more speakers that West uh, Westminster Theological Seminary President Peter Lilback will talk about George Washington uncanceling George Washington, Attorney Rick Green uncanceling Thomas Jefferson, Lisa Dunn will talk about how to start your own college if you have to, for the sake of your offspring to get a good education. As you can see, we've got quite a lineup here. And that's only a few of them. I don't have time to name probably all of them. Oh, but that is so exciting. And I'm going to have to try to work this out, my friend. This this is amazing. So we'll be talking more about that, about those days and our involvement. We'd love for that to happen. In the meantime, friends, you can go to the website and find out all of this information for yourself by going to 
wellversedworld.org and click on the picture for the future conference and you'll see all of these speakers and uh, pictures of the speakers right there for you. Uh, Jim Garlow, thank you so much for not only being with us here today, but more importantly, thank you for being in the fight for America. We've got a lot to lose and we need to fight to keep what we have. Yeah, you used the phrase, interesting phrase earlier. You said separation of church and state. And I know you know this, and your listeners are sophisticated because they listen to you. But we have to remind those who don't know, that phrase came from Thomas Jefferson in January the 1st, 1802, in a letter to a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. Right. And he wrote, they were concerned, as you as you well know, they were concerned that the government would intrude into the life of the church. And he said, no, there's a wall of separation which does not allow the government to do that. But he did not have the view that the church can't not come into the government. And how do we know that? We know it because he attended and supported weekly Christian worship services in the U.S. Capitol building. They went every Sunday from 1800 to 1869. He got on his horse in Pennsylvania, rode down Pennsylvania Avenue with a Bible under his arm and attended those Christian weekly worship services where the Marine Corps band supplied the music, would you believe? Wow. Now, uh, in 2014, 2014, a friend and I restarted weekly worship services in the U.S. Capitol, Wednesday nights at 615, and, and we called it the Jefferson Gathering just to honor Jefferson's position on this. And yet, how did this get flipped to mean just the opposite? In, 18, no, in 1947, in the Everson case before the Supreme Court, In 1948, the McCullough case, they flipped the meaning of Jefferson's wall of separation, separation of church and state, to mean exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It was to keep the church out of government, a complete violation of the intentionality of one of the founders of America, one of the persons who was the primary thinkers and writers of our founding document, a violation of the intentionality of our founders. Uh, it, it is so upsetting to think how that they are twisting and revising history every day. And I thank God for people like you who are out there in the battle for us all. And we say, uh, keep it going, sir. We're praying for you. We're praying for the Futures Conference. And uh, we hope that uh, all of our listeners will check this out. Pastor Jim Garlow, thank you so much for being with me today. Such an honor to be on with you, my brother, and thank you for what you do as well. Blessings on you. Thank you. Many thanks to Jim Garlow, and we're going to take a pause now and uh, listen to a clip, a bit of an unusual thing that Al Mohler is talking about from today's The Briefing. You know, it really does uh, matter, according to some researchers, if we use bad language in reviews. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's what the, uh, the researchers are telling us. Here with a couple of thoughts on that is Al Mohler from The Briefing. These researchers tell us that the most effective use of a swear word online is in a review directed at a product, not so much a person, like a dishwasher. You want to talk about a really good dishwasher or a really bad dishwasher? Well, there just might be a bad word that might amplify your point. This first point also comes down to the fact that the researchers say you're on safer ground using bad words about products more than people. Who would have figured that? The second thing is that the researchers say you can't use too many bad words or people will think you're a bad person. That's not exactly the way they write the advice, but that's the bottom line. If you use just a few bad words, well, it's the words that are bad. If you use too many of them, then it's you that's bad. Again, the moral confusion of our age, as if all this is just a matter of advertising and political public relations strategy. The third issue they raise is, quote, don't break the rules. That means the online rules, but don't censor yourself unnecessarily. They went on to say that their research investigated different types of swear words. I'm not going to mention them. And they found that, well, you just don't get much of an impact by using almost bad words. You can know exactly what we're talking about. My mother was really hard on those. Now, most of this article is about how companies are well-served to let customers or the general public 
use these swear words as they're defined here, these bad words, profane words, ugly words, dirty words, to use these forbidden words to allow them to be used in order to amplify customer satisfaction. But the writers then say, quote, finally, none of this says anything about whether companies should use swear words in their own communications with customers. They stipulated, quote, we studied only customer to customer interactions, end quote. All right, how should Christians think about this? Well, Christians should understand that in every language, there are certain terms, certain words. We're told in just about every single language, there's a list of forbidden words. They are words that are considered unacceptable. They're often words that, rightly understood, are incredibly crude. Sometimes they are racist. Sometimes they are just simply derogatory. Sometimes they are scatological, which means they have to do with the bathroom. Sometimes they are sexual. The Bible tells us that we're known by our speech, and whether it's the psalmist or in other portions of the scripture, you find the exhortation to let our speech reveal our character and our character reveal Christ-likeness, obedience to God, godliness. The scripture also says, and this is really interesting, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let that be clear enough. Let your character be strong enough and trusted enough that you don't have to use some kind of additional word just to get attention as if no one's actually going to believe your yes means yes or your no means no. Al Mohler from The Briefing. You can get that by going to albertmohler.com. It will be delivered to your inbox every day. We'll be back in one moment with Sean Sullivan from Mission 823. Don't go away. This is Afternoons with Mike. Back again here for our third segment on today's program. And with me on the line is Sean Sullivan from Mission 823. And Sean, it has been now a couple of months since this terrible war in Ukraine began. And your work there with the mission and with the people that I know you love and hold them dear to your heart, it's going on. Give us an update, if you will, Sean. Yes, sir. We have uh, changed significantly in our focus uh, on the field in Ukraine. You know, the, the war theater has uh, has morphed very, very quickly from, you know, an all-out assault uh, nationwide from border to border, uh, rockets, missiles, and mortars falling um, all over the country, where, uh, you know, 95 days ago, we were almost exclusively focused on Uh, evacuation of people from uh, artillery fire and from uh, incoming uh, air assault. Um, And now almost all of those requests for evacuation have disappeared. People are returning uh, back to their homes out of necessity. They have to care for their, you know, care for their families and care for their their properties. And they're also just out of money. They can't live abroad in Europe, uh, as many of us obviously couldn't either. Um, And so they just have to return home. And so our focus has shifted now uh, in just three months almost entirely to uh, humanitarian aid distribution because of the broken supply chains. I can only imagine. I mean, we are dealing with a lot of broken supply chains here in America. Add to that uh, a three-month war, three-plus months war with Russia, like you said, with rockets uh, unexpectedly and sometimes targeting schools and hospitals, uh, that's enough to disrupt any supply chain, right? It it really is. And, um, you know, ours is more of a, a, a geopolitical, financial kind of a management uh, situation here mm-hmm. in the States. But oh, in, yeah. in, in Ukraine, if you can imagine, um, uh, almost every every road or highway or rail system that would normally be used for logistics has been uh, bombed to smithereens. And, you know, so we're not just avoiding potholes. There are burned out tanks in the middle of the road where semis can't pass by and people are um, living in food deserts now in the major metropolitan areas in the east where almost their entire cities have been destroyed and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are without access to to, uh, to regular food supply. Uh, and so attempting to deliver those things is very difficult because of the ongoing airstrikes, because of the debris that's just everywhere. And then a major uh, problem is um, understanding how to deal with unexploded ordnance uh, because there is uh, there's just 
scraps of uh, unexploded mines and missiles and bombs uh, yeah. and mortars and rockets just laying everywhere. And um, the Russian forces, when they are driven out of an area, they leave behind, uh, you know, things that are disguised uh, as uh, as friendly, you know, as toys or as mobile phones or, you know, even, uh, unfortunately, bodies with, uh, you know, infants that are alive strapped to them, you know, to try to lure people in or ambush. It's just a very, very evil and, and wicked thing that's going on right now. But uh, in order to get to the supplies, you have to traverse all of that kind of stuff. And it's just a, it's a very, very difficult thing. Now, the people that are doing this, that that seems so heroic in and of itself. I mean, it's one thing to uh, be able to give money, and I'm grateful for the many people who do uh, donate, and they are maybe shipping things themselves. But it's, an, it's another thing, like you said, altogether different thing for someone to make the travel, let's say, from Poland across the border into Ukraine and to have to deal with all of what you have to deal with, not only the danger from further attacks, but like you said, mitigating all of the destruction that's happened in the uh, first couple of months of the war. Uh, that just seems to be overwhelming. And yet the heart for these people to deliver these goods, it's it stays at an all-time high, right? It, it really is. They're uh, extremely motivated, um, not only on a human compassion level, but now especially at a, a national patriotic um, level, the Ukrainian people have risen up and, and determined not just eight years ago when you know they were being assaulted, but but especially now um, they have made an absolute, unrevocable, irrevocable determination that they will be independent um, or die trying. There there is no going back, and the the commitment from the Ukrainian people, from the president all the way down to uh, the very very. Uh, lowest citizen in Ukraine, their determination is that they will not concede one square centimeter uh, of their own land uh, to any occupying forces or assaulting forces. And so this this is going to be a brutal and long fight, um, but uh, it, it's it's one that the Ukrainians will not give up. Many observers believe that one of the reasons why it is... Uh going on the way it is right now is that the Russians had greatly underestimated the resolve by the Ukrainians to fight this fight the way they've done. I mean, even uh, in Ukraine to have the president, what's so ironic is to see, I have, uh, since you and I have talked, watched a little bit of the episodes of the president of Ukraine when he was an actor and he was an actor. And ironically, how crazy is it that he was playing the role of an unexpected president and having to deal yeah. with things? And now he's doing that in real life, but it's not just real life. It's during a war with Russia, for crying out loud. Yeah, and uh, and has become not only the hero of uh, the people of Ukraine, but has become um, a model uh, of heroism and patriotism and independence and freedom for the rest of the world. But God, the guy is, is really become an example of uh, what it takes to lead under very, very severe uh, circumstances and is displaying a, a level of courage that is just unbelievable. He was literally just two days ago in eastern Ukraine, uh, north of the front lines, uh, examining the areas where the Russians had just been driven out, uh, ministering to his people and serving his people and encouraging his soldiers uh, there on the, on the front lines. The guy is uh, has got a, a spine of, uh, of titanium. He's just a, a really courageous guy to be admired. It really, he really is, and he has done a wonderful job of kind of passing along the moxie that he is walking in right now to just about every person that's uh, th that stayed behind. And now, like you said, I think that has bolstered the courage of some of the Ukrainians' uh, residents that left, and now they're returning to to join in on the fight. So, Russia, would it that be what you're hearing from your sources that? Russia really underestimated uh, the, uh, the the resolve. Is that what you're hearing? 
Well, it's not just what we hear, it's what we absolutely know. Um, you know, a couple of things happened in the process from 2014 when the military was degraded intentionally in mm -hmm. preparation for an alignment with Russia. Um, and they've had to literally every single day improve their capabilities uh, without the assistance before this escalation started. Without the assistance of the West, they created entirely new technologies that are being used today uh, that uh, the rest of the world has never seen. There, there are new Neptune missiles that have been created, entirely new sniper schools that the United States is now sending our snipers to Ukrainian sniper school to find out what they're doing. It's just a, an unbelievable uh, uh, rise uh, to the occasion. But not only did the Russians underestimate the capabilities uh, for, for mobility of the Ukrainians, but they also severely overestimated their own capabilities. And um, the, those two things combined are resulting in tremendous losses, uh, almost five to one um, against the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Five to one on the Russian side of loss. That is really true because their forces have been greatly diminished. And, you know, some people are, are worried. I, I, I would wonder if... Again, your contacts would be in this group. They're worried about, uh, obviously, the the pride of Putin. And would he then, because of just embarrassment, if nothing else, uh, go ahead and, and resolve to take this thing up another level? And, of course, there's been all the talk, uh, a higher level of of uh, regard for potential nuclear strikes. Do you think any of that is growing, or is that kind of settling down there? Well, uh, you know, it's difficult to say because they keep uh, the condition of their president and the mindset of their president really, really close to the chest. But we are receiving intelligence briefings that are purportedly from uh, inside uh, Russian FSB or Secret Service uh, sources who are leaking information, uh, and these come from British intelligence sources and from supposedly the Russian intelligence sources uh, inside that are saying that um, President Putin is suffering severe uh, medical uh, situation right now. Some uh, speculate that it's related to uh, a brain cancer that's affecting his vision and uh, potentially combined with uh, Parkinson's disease or something like that that is causing severe tremors of his extremities, his limbs. You know, when he's in meetings, he's clutching, uh, you know, gripping with a death grip the, the table so that he doesn't uh, show his, uh, his uh, quaking of his, of his arms. And mm. his, um, his notes are written maybe two sentences to a page because it's been said that he's too proud uh, to demonstrate the weakness of spectacles. Uh, he doesn't want the world to see him in glasses as an old man, so he has his team write, uh, write things in very large letters on pages. Uh, just strange things like that, outbursts of emotion, uh, you know, flipping back and forth from rage to, you know, to calm. So all of those kinds of things are, are purportedly coming from intelligence sources close to President Putin. It's difficult to say what, what he would resort to uh, we know that he's a madman. Uh, yeah. We know that absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not sure what control those around him have over his actions, but uh, I know from experience that it takes at least two people to push the button. So, <laughs> Yeah, I tell you, this has really been a surprising, I think, three months. Uh, when you and I talked, and we did talk on the very day that all this began, I was privileged to be able to chat with you that day, and uh, it just seemed like then a different prognosis, didn't it, from uh, from the the standpoint of where we were sitting that day looking at this thing and, and to see what has happened. It's so encouraging in a lot of ways for people that love Ukraine, that love the people there. It's really encouraging to see this level of fight and resistance uh, go out. How can we as Americans right now, how can we help them? Uh, boy, uh, brother, I, I just tell you, there's there's so much need um, in the humanitarian sphere right now. Uh, we're, we're shifting our focus. You know, like I said before, we were 
uh, almost exclusively focused on evacuation under fire and uh, transport and temporary uh, shelter, transport across the border. And now uh, we're focused on two things, um, and that is because so much of the uh, residential areas of these places that are under fire have been destroyed. There's a lot of people that have been de uh, displaced uh, either permanently or for a very long time because there's nothing left to go back to. And if they could go back, it'd be, be too dangerous to do so mm -hmm. um, now anyway because of all of the ordinance that's laying around. It's just uh, almost impossible. So what we're focusing on is long-term housing, and we just don't have enough space. So the capability to purchase uh, new uh, new facilities so that we can provide long-term support for those who are displaced and then later transition those into ministry-able uh, uh, you know, support for those who, uh, who have need, either transition centers for orphans or something like that, but it would be easily uh, repurposed. Uh, the second thing is uh, providing for uh, food and medical supplies and hygiene supplies in the humanitarian chain uh, and just enabling us to be able to transport and deliver those uh, those goods are their two key focuses right now. And so the simple thing would be to donate to Mission 823. Give us that uh, website so people can connect. Yes, sir. Thank you. That is mission823.com and uh, specifically designated for the war relief effort. There's a link in red letters just below the picture or video on the uh, on the home page if you'll click that that will take you directly to uh, our system that is all designated 100 percent for the war relief in ukraine sean sullivan from mission 823 thank you for being with me thank you my friend i appreciate all, all that you guys do okay god bless you and friends thanks for joining us today we'll see you tomorrow right here on afternoons with mike